We'll hear argument now on number 01147, Securities and Exchange Commission versus Charles Zanford. Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Stockbrokers like Respondent are the critical links between the national securities markets and individual investors who trust brokers to buy and sell securities for their benefit. Respondent betrayed that trust by selling his customer securities not for their benefit, but for a secret purpose of misappropriating the proceeds and by embezzling the proceeds as he had planned. In so doing, Respondent violated Section 10B of the Securities Exchange Act and Rule 10B-5. Those provisions prohibit the use of fraud in connection with the purchase or sale of any security. Respondent. Roberts, could you clarify for me what the government's position is in this case? Suppose, uh, suppose that the uh, broker had not, when he sold the stock, intended to uh, embezzle. But then he made the sale, and the sale enabled his embezzling. Uh, after selling it, he conceived the scheme to embezzle. Is it the government's position that in that situation, uh, uh, 10B would still, would still cover it? That um, embezzlement would not be in connection with the prior sale under the theory that we're asking the Court to adopt here. But the SEC uh, believes that it would be a violation of 10B under a different theory, which isn't uh, a necessary consequence of we, the one. We don't have here. to agree with that. To you don't have to agree you. with that to uh, to uh, find a violation now, here. The SEC adjudications that uh, uh, that you rely upon, uh, do, what kind of a situation do they involve? Do they all involve? They involve both situations. Both situations. Both situations. Both situations. Um, does the but, does the SEC routinely audit brokers' accounts or do spot audits to? ensure compliance with the theory you are suggesting here, or are they just reactive when they find out about a fraud? I am not aware that they routinely uh, audit the brokers. The, uh, the NASD does, uh, does do that and then refers matters to the SEC and consults with the SEC. The SEC also would uh, respond to complaints that uh, they got or take investigations if uh, if they uh, had reason to believe it was called to their attention. And I, I take it that if the uh, NASD tells the uh, SEC of the existence of a fraud, the SEC can then uh, request the United States government to prosecute uh, if there is a wire fraud? Or the, they could, could request a prosecution, uh, Your Honor, but it's important that the SEC is the federal agency that's charged with uh, maintaining uh, the integrity of the markets and investor confidence in the markets have direct authority to prevent and to pursue the kind of fraud that's involved here, which is very uh, potentially very unsettling to the markets, because uh, since most transactions are made through brokers, if customers and investors can't trust their brokers to be executing their transactions for the customer's benefit uh, rather than for the broker's benefits, the markets can't function effectively. Well, do you say then that any fraud by a broker in connection with a customer is actionable by the SEC? Uh, it, that goes back to the, to the question that Justice Scalia uh, asked me, Your Honor. And under the theory that we're advocating here and for the Court to rule for us here, you don't need to conclude that. The SEC uh, does does take that position. Uh, does take what position? That, that any fraudulent conversion by a broker from a brokerage account is a violation of, of 10B because it's fraud and it's in connection with the purchase or sale of securities because the very purpose of the brokerage account is to buy and sell securities, and the broker has access to the customer's 
assets that's for quite the purpose a leap. of Ryan. That's a leap from any case we've ever decided. That, that is, is beyond a, any case that I'm aware that you've decided. But here, uh, the broker actually uh, converted the securities by means of fraudulent sales, and his deception uh, not only uh, caused the sales, it was material to the sales, and the sales themselves, um, because they were fraudulent, coincided with and completed uh, the fraud. And that's uh, very much uh, in tune. That, that's really controlled by uh, past cases of the court. For instance, in the Banker's Life case, uh, the court uh, held that corporate fiduciaries violated Section 10B when they deceived the corporation into believing that it would receive the proceeds of the securities that the corporation sold. But there, there, there was mis- misrepresentation about a particular security. Uh, that didn't happen here. There, there wasn't a misrepresentation in Banker's Life about a particular security. There was a misrepresentation that the corporation would receive the proceeds. And there was that same misrepresentation here, Your Honor, only it was by way of an omission or a course of conduct rather than an affirmative statement, because the customers had entrusted respondent with the authority to trade on their behalf with the understanding and the implicit representation that uh, he would trade on their behalf and that they would receive the proceeds of the sales, that they would be used for their benefit in other trades. So in this case, the fraud could have been avoided, on your theory, if the the broker had had gotten in touch with the clients and said, I'm going to sell this, but I'm going to use the money for myself. That would have turned it from fraud under 10B into theft. That would have turned it from fraud into theft, it would also have been a breach of his fiduciary duty if he went ahead and they didn't authorize him. But just like in O'Hagan, but it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been fraud. It wouldn't have been fraud if there was no deception. Uh, they, it's critical to a 10B violation that there be deception of some kind. Mr. Roberts, there's one point in your reply brief that I didn't quite grasp. This action is brought by the SEC. Yes. And it hinges on the wrong that was done to the customer. Could the customer bring this very lawsuit? Could the customer have sued the broker for a 10B violation? In this circumstance, yes, the, the uh, customer could have brought a private action against the broker, Your Honor. That, that wouldn't uh, be true in, in every circumstance because uh, the customer, a, pr- a private plaintiff seeking damages, has to prove elements of a violation in addition to what the SEC must prove. The customer has to show uh, causation of the transaction and loss or damages to the customer. Uh, the customer also has to be an actual purchaser-seller. Uh, in, the, in the situation where there's a sale by the broker of the customer securities, the purchaser-seller requirement will be met. But uh, there might not be uh, the damages that are necessary unless the broker follows through with his scheme to misappropriate the, the proceeds of the sale. But this, this time he did. But he did. There's, there's, there's another curiosity in this case. There was a prosecution for wire fraud. The restitution sought was $10,800. And now the SEC is going uh, after the broker for a much larger sum. Why wasn't a greater sum asked in the wire fraud case? I, I don't. No, Your Honor, why the, why the restitution award in the criminal action was limited to, uh, to $10,000. But it's clear uh, that uh, respondent, uh, it's, it's clear from the allegations in the complaint and also from the criminal trial that respondent uh, did uh, embezzle 
uh, far more than uh, that amount of the of the Woods assets. And that's one of the reasons that it's important for the SEC to be able to pursue this action, because uh, if, if it had to rely on the criminal action, then there wouldn't be a full disgorgement of the improper gains by the, by the broker, and there would be far less deterrent to this kind of activity. Of course, Mr. a criminal Mr. prosecution is a significant deterrent, but — Mr. Roberts, uh, did the allegations of your complaint in this case accord with the narrower theory that you now say is, is enough to uh, decide this case? That is to say, as I read your description of the complaint, it did not say that the sales of the security were made with the intention at the time the sales were made of absconding with the proceeds. All it said is that, uh, is that he sold uh, the securities and um, stole the funds. It, uh, it, it does, uh, it does co- comport with our uh, theory, Your Honor. It doesn't, uh, in, in so many words, allege the intent at the time, but the, the but factual allegations in the complaint necessarily give rise to that inference because, first, one of the, one of the allegations is that respondent issued checks to himself on the mutual fund account and that the cashing of those checks caused the sales. And so when he took the money, he necessarily, uh, by writing the checks to himself, he necessarily had the intent at the time. And then there are additional allegations. Wait, wait, excuse me. He, he wrote the checks before the sales were made? In the, in the, um, in, in the mutual fund uh, checks, in, on, uh, if you look at uh, page 28A of, of the petition in paragraph 16 of, um, of the complaint, describes the, the uh, beginning of the fraudulent scheme in May of uh, 1988, shortly after Mr. Wood was hospitalized as a result of his stroke, and uh, notes that between May and June 1988, Sanford, without the prior knowledge or consent of Wood and Ostolsky, issued three checks to himself, totaling $41,000. The checks were drawn on a joint mutual fund account held by Wood and Oskulsi outside of their Dominic account, and the funds represented therein were obtained through the sale of mutual fund shares. It didn't say were later obtained. It just says they were they were obtained. I mean, I, I don't see that that says that the funds weren't there until the uh, un, un, uh, until the checks were written. I, I, I think the way that that, that that kind of account works is that it's like a checking account with your mutual funds, and you write the check um, you write the checks on the account. And the redeeming of the check caused this, causes the sales of, of the mutual funds. But um, regardless of uh, whether it precisely states that, that's certainly a, a, a reasonable inference or facts that can be proved based on these allegations, which is all that's necessary to get past the dismissal of the complaint, Your Honor. And in addition, in the other allegations on the next on the next page and the paragraphs on the next page, there are, there are descriptions of repeated sales and repeated conversions over a long period of time. And, uh, you know, one time maybe he formed the intent after the sales, um, although that's unlikely given that this happened after the allegations in the, uh, in the previous paragraph. But uh, 13 and more times, uh, Your Honor, I think that it's, it's hard to believe. Who gets the recovery, Mr. Roberts? Uh, the recovery uh, goes to the, to the government, but the, the uh, SEC has a policy of uh, if there are identifiable victims, to uh, endeavor to um, to give the victims those those funds um, and 
uh, to make them whole if they're available. So here where there are identifiable victims, they, w they would do that. Well, um, isn't, it, isn't it a little odd? You have two different branches of the government, perhaps not branches, but two different proceedings. One, a criminal proceeding, which authorizes restitution. And in that proceeding, the decision was made that $10,000 would be allowed and awarded in restitution. Then the SEC comes along and says, no, that wasn't enough. We want to get, you know, several hundred thousand more. Well, the, the, uh, the restitution, first of all, the purposes of restitution and disgorgement are different in that one is, is aimed on the, is focused on the, um, the making whole the loss to the, to the, um, people that are injured, whereas the other is, is aimed at, um, requiring the wrongdoer to disgorge any benefit that he got from, from the scheme. But, um, in addition, Your Honor, there's, uh, the, the statute provides for a civil action, uh, and, uh, the, and gives the SEC the power to do that in order to, uh, further its, its role in, uh, ensuring the integrity of the markets and ensuring investor confidence in the markets. And, uh, it empowers the SEC uh, rather than uh, the individual U.S. attorneys to determine when it's necessary to, uh, to uh, ask for, for that uh, kind of a remedy in order to further those purposes. And the SEC uh, properly made that determination, made that determination here. Well, well, just to explore the point, is there anything in the record to show that uh, these victims lost only $10,000 and that the broker just made all the rest of uh, no, the, the, the record, I, I think, establishes that they lost everything that they had entrusted to him, which was uh, 420, uh, roughly, thousands of dollars' worth. Mr. Roberts, isn't it the case sometimes in criminal proceedings where restitution is ordered that full restitution is not ordered for a variety of reasons? The victim's family, uh, or the, the defendant's family may have certain needs, and the court may decide well, I'm just going to order a limited amount of restitution. Does that happen? Sometimes? Yes, that certainly happens, Your Honor. Uh, if, thank the family you. Has, <laughs> if the family has needs, the SEC doesn't have to worry about it, I tell you. Well, the SEC does its own balancing of what's appropriate to further the, to further the interests, and it asks for a disgorgement, um, which is an equitable remedy, and the Court takes into account the, those concerns um, in, in uh, deciding whether to award it. And here the, the District Court did determine that it was appropriate um, to award disgorgement in the amount of $343,000. It is odd that there was no kind of, apparently no cooperation here, that the, the criminal case goes on for that limited amount, and then the SEC comes in after. Don't the uh, relevant prosecutors talk to each other in advance about a case like this? Yes, I, I, they do talk to each other, but the decision, uh, Your Honor, whether to, to bring the prosecution and what, what to charge and uh, what to ask for is, is the decision of the prosecutors, whereas the decision of what is uh, appropriate to pursue as a civil action uh, in order to further the purposes of the securities laws is the responsibility of the, of the SEC. And if the, if the two arms don't uh, necessarily uh, agree that that can all be done in a criminal proceeding, then sometimes a, a, a civil proceeding is necessary to accomplish the, the goals. And the SEC is an independent regulatory agency, isn't it? Yes, it is. So it's not within the control of the President? Um, so if the uh, Justice Department disagrees with the SEC, the SEC can still go off on its own. Is that the way the scheme works, in theory? Well, uh, in theory, Your Honor, uh, 
yes, although um, here in the, in the Supreme Court, the Solicitor uh, General represents the, the SEC, and in order for the SEC to, to come here, the, the Solicitor General has to authorize, uh, authorize the action. Is there any limit? If we have a broker, a licensed broker, is there any limit at all or just any fraud by a licensed broker falls within 10B? Well, again, I'd, I'd like to reiterate that to decide this case and under the theory that we're advancing here, you don't uh, need to reach that. Uh, but even under the, the other theory that I alluded to, th there are limits to what would be covered. For instance, a broker could defraud uh, customers by convincing them to pursue an investment advisory relationship, and that would not be um, that, that would not necessarily uh, be covered. If the, in addition, the broker might uh, defraud the customers of assets that are outside of the brokerage account and that aren't uh, securities because the broker has developed a relationship of, of trust with the customers. That, that wouldn't be covered under, uh, under the other theory. Um, in addition, uh, the broker, uh, I guess it's, it's a, a similar thing. Uh, the, the broker could, could def to defraud the customer into making some other kind of investments, uh, real estate investments, because of the relationship of, of trust that had developed. Um, but the, the SEC uh, has consistently taken the position that uh, with regard to brokerage accounts uh, and the brokerage relationship that, that involves the purchase or sale of securities and that exists for the purpose of the purchase or sale of securities, that, that it is a violation when the broker defrauds Suppose defrauds customer. Suppose Zanford were not a licensed broker. He just was pretending to be a broker, but he wasn't at all. He went to these people and said, I'm a broker, give me your money, and the same thing happened. That, that would still be uh, — and then he — they gave him the money and he purchased securities and then sold the securities. But he's not licensed to sell any — That would still be a, a, a violation, Your Honor, because — he would uh, have the same fiduciary relationship with them uh, by virtue of them uh, making him their agent for securities transactions and entrusting uh, their assets to him to engage in securities transactions. And when he sold for the secret purpose of uh, misappropriating the proceeds rather than for their benefit, and he did not disclose that he was doing that, he would be deceiving them in connection with the sale of securities just as uh, Mr. Zanford did here. And that would be a violation under those circumstances. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for a rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Roberts. Uh, Mr. Goldblatt, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We do, we do not dispute, and I don't think it can be disputed, that this conduct obviously is covered by any number of laws, civil, criminal, state, federal. The rules of this self-regulatory organizations, and the Court below recognized that as well. But it treated the question of whether or not Mr. Zanford was also liable under Section 10B as a different question requiring a specific proof, and it is that proof that the Court found wanting. In that regard, I think it's also important that one of the pivotal factors in, in our theory of the case was that this was a discretionary account, and the SEC was relying on the bare facts alleged in the wire fraud indictment to prove its case. And under those circumstances, there was no investment decision being made by the victims in this case. And we argue to the Court below, and we submit to this Court, that that's a pivotal distinction in the 10B context, because 10B deals with investment decisions. And if no one is being defrauded in the decision they're making as to the purchase or sale, 
All that leaves the SEC within this case is the conversion of the proceeds. Well, the District Court granted summary judgment in favor of the SEC, as I understand it. That's correct. And the Court of Appeals reversed and, in effect, granted summary judgment for Mr. Zanford. That's also correct. So you have to take the uh, allegations in the complaint as true at that point, I think, don't you? Mr. Chief Justice, we don't think so, because those allegations were not being considered by the Court of Appeals. I think the, the SEC at various points uh, has indicated in its pleadings that the facts alleged in the indictment were the same as the complaint, and that may have caused part of the problem. But the only facts alluded to by the Court of Appeals, as you indicate, is in effect granting summary judgment to the non-moving party. In that regard, there's no reference at all in the opinion of the Court of Appeals referring to any of the facts in the complaint. They refer to the indictment. Well, well just, sure, should there have been some reference to the facts in the complaint, since they were about to render summary judgment against the SEC? That may well be the case. It, the, the problem we have with that is a question of issue preservation. When the SEC petitioned for rehearing, ordinarily, in the ordinary case, if you reverse the order granting summary judgment, you obviously don't grant summary judgment to the non-moving party. You remain for further proceedings. But when the SEC moved for rehearing and rehearing en banc, it did not raise the issue with the Court as to why it had remanded with instructions to dismiss. So on this record, you, you really don't know what, what the reasoning of the Court of Appeals was. But wouldn't they have to, Mr. Goldbach? This, this, a complaint to be thrown out when there's been no, nothing beyond the complaint, doesn't, mustn't you assume the facts as pled in the complaint? Justice Ginsburg, my point is, is that the question that I think that is presented in this case is whether the SEC, by its own actions, limited itself to the facts asserted on, for purposes of summary judgment, which were the facts in the indictment. Now, if the Court of Appeals was operating on the assumption that that was their case, it could, if that was their case and it was clear that was the, what it had to consider, if it concluded those facts were insufficient as a matter of law, that would be the only rationale in light of its opinion, which only considered the facts in the indictment. But the government's petition here sets forth some facts. The stockbroker sells his customers for his own benefit. And, so, and uh, in your brief in opposition, you didn't challenge that question, did you? Yes, I did. You did? What I challenged okay. the — in our brief in opposition, we challenged any consideration of any facts beyond the indictment, that any issue with regard to facts in the complaint were not before the Court of Appeals and were not relied on by the SEC. But that just seems weird in a way. I mean, this is a civil action. And, and you, to insist that it be tried on the facts in an indictment in the criminal case, as opposed to the you know, alleged in a complaint in this very case, seems, seems odd. I absolutely agree, but the question is not so much whether that was of the making of the Court of Appeals or whether that was of the making of the SEC. And I think it was the Court's understanding that that was the SEC's position, that they were narrowing themselves to the indictment, and that's what the Court considered. Uh, but regardless, even with the facts, I mean, if I'm wrong on that, regardless of the facts, even with the facts that the SEC relies on from the complaint, you essentially have the same problem. And again, it's not a question of whether this conduct is covered. It's covered under the broker rules. But for purposes of 10B, as the SEC now concedes, this would also affect private actions. And in that regard, these facts simply do not meet the paradigm for a 10B violation, which is either that somebody is duped into buying or selling a security, a particular security, because that's the paradigm for the statute, or in limited circumstances, such as a case like O'Hagan, where it affects market integrity, the Court has also found liability. But that's in a situation. So suppose, suppose that the customer comes to the broker and says, here's 100 shares of the ABC company. Sell these shares for me and put the money in, in your broker account. And the broker, before he 
the sales has the intent to take the money for the broker's own account. Is, is, is there a fraud under your theory? Under that theory, I would submit there is a fraud. That is unauthorized to take the money in that situation, and he's duped into turning over the securities to the broker, and there is an investment decision being made. But you have a no, — No, no. He's made the investment decision, my hypothetical. He said, I've, I don't want your advice about something. You sell these things. I'm directing you to do that. In that circumstance, if he then sells the security and places it in the account, then he's completed the instructions. But if he sells the security and converts it to his own use, then I believe you don't have in that situation. If, in other words, if those are the instructions from the client to the broker, I correct myself, that, that would not be a 10B violation. It will be a violation of the broker rules. It will be a conversion. It will be a criminal act. But there will be no fraud. He will have carried out the instructions to sell the stock. There's no inducement there to Well, on, 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 only uh, in, a, in a really a Pickwickian sense of the term. He carries out the instructions to sell the stock, but he, he keeps the money. Nobody would construe the instructions that way. Understood, but the, in other words, the instructions were to sell the stock. He's not being duped into selling the stock. That is exactly what he wanted done. What is what he's being duped into is the proceeds are being converted. But the difference with bankers' life is that the 10B violator in that case actually goes to the person and says, we should sell this with the intent of diverting the proceeds. That person is to duped into believing by the actor that they are making the sale with the understanding that they will get the proceeds. Again, it does, for purposes does of — Does that differ from here? I thought here that the — what our facts that we're assuming are that the stockbroker says to the client, I have control of your account and I'll sell for your benefit. That's the implicit instruction. Client says, sell for my benefit. And here, the stockbroker sells for his own benefit. What's the difference between that case, which is this one, and the one Justice Kennedy is putting? I think the difference is, for purposes of the 10B paradigm, it requires that the, this, the, the sale be induced by the broker for fraudulent reasons. If all he's doing is converting the proceeds, but here we also have, as they've emphasized about 50 times, not simply stealing. What we have is a sale of stock where the stockbroker has the intent when he sells the stock to keep the money, contrary to what the implicit assumption is about what the client wants. Now, that, that seems to be a little extra thing here, so we don't have to reach all these broad issues. Now, what do we do? That, that, that's what I find indistinguishable. Justice Breyer, here is the, 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 the distinction that I would draw. In the banker's life situation where you have the sale induced, the 10B violation is complete when the sale is made. In the situation you describe, until and unless the broker, having followed the instructions and sold the stock, until and unless he actually converts the proceeds to his own use, you don't have a 10B Why, why don't you? I mean, if we could ever prove it, uh, suppose, in fact, the broker because we had a mind-reading machine, sold the stock in order to convert the proceeds, puts the money in the account, and then dies. I mean, you know, it's a little weird. But nonetheless, if we could ever prove such a thing, why wouldn't that be a violation of 10b-5? Because until and unless he actually converts the proceeds, he hasn't violated 10b. He has not done anything against his client's instructions. He hasn't. He, he has, has converted. He has sold the shares contrary to the instruction, sell them for my benefit, for his own benefit. 
my point is that until he actually converts, while that, while, while that money is still in the account, while the stock has been sold consistent with the directions, until and unless he actually converts the proceeds to his own use, he has not violated 10B. But what about yeah, — ne- never, never mind the taking of the proceeds. Suppose you have a broker who, for some reason, because he has an interest in a company or something else, sells stock in a customer's account where it didn't really make sense to sell it. The only benefit from selling it is a benefit for the broker himself. His brother-in-law is, is with a company that would profit from this sale of the stock. Would that be covered by 10B? I think that would be covered by 10B. Well, why isn't that the same situation here? Because this sale was not a sale. Never, never mind the later theft. The sale was not a sale for the benefit of the customer, which is what he's promised to do. He's promised, I'll manage these stocks for your benefit. And here he sells them when the customer's interest did not call for a sale. The only reason the sale happened is that the broker had, had his own interest in mind. Justice Scalia, I, I, the, the, the reason why that doesn't work here is because, as the Court of Appeals found, there's no evidence in this record to establish that the sales themselves were inconsistent with the client's interest. Regardless of what Zanford may have been thinking, the evidence simply showed that, that, that they were sold. He had discretionary power well, to do it, it. Does it have to be inconsistent? Do you have to prove that uh, they were inconsistent with the interest, or is it enough to prove that the broker did not act in the customer's interest? Isn't that enough for the breach of the fiduciary do- duty? Even, even if it turns out that, what do you know, it was a good idea to sell, the market crashes. Nonetheless, he was guilty of a f- fiduciary breach if he didn't sell it because he thought it would help the customer, but he thought it would help him. Wouldn't that be a breach right then and there? It might be a breach of fiduciary duty in the trust sense. It does not affect the sale. If it's cons- unless you can establish that the sale is unauthorized, that it is inconsistent with the client's well, interest. It, it is unauthorized. I didn't authorize him to sell stock for his benefit. The whole, whole idea was he's supposed to sell it for mine. But the sale itself was authorized. The only point I'm bringing out is, in, in a situation like Banker's Life, where the broker induces the sale with fraudulent intent. You have a complete violation when the stock is sold. It makes no difference after that whether the broker is successful or unsuccessful in diverting the proceeds. You've established a fraudulent sale in which an investor's decision has been induced by fraudulent intent. In the situation where the sale is authorized, either because the client calls the broker and says, I want you to sell XYZ Corporation today, and the broker does that. That one I agree with. Uh, in that situation, regardless of what the broker is thinking, he may be thinking, I'm going to take the money and run. But that it's, isn't what happened here. The, 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 the customer didn't call it and said sell. No. But the broker has authority to sell, but he has authority to sell in the interest of the client. And no interest of the client called for the, for the sale of these securities. The only thing that called for the sale of these securities was, without selling them, I can't get the money to steal. Justice Lee, in that regard, we point to, to two decisions from the Seventh Circuit in O'Brien and congregation that deal with discretionary accounts. And then when a client turns money over to an investment counselor or a broker and says, you make the decisions, I'm giving you blanket authority, and that's what we have in this this record. In that situation, that takes you out of the 10B paradigm. Well, you're you're saying, in effect, that not every breach of fiduciary duty is a fraud. That's correct. Not every breach of fiduciary duty is a fraud, and not every breach of fiduciary duty will violate 10B. But in your paradigm, you're saying the, the authorization is induced by fraud, and that's crucial. But in why don't you have the equivalent of it he- here? Because what you have here is a continuing authorization. 
there is a, there is an authorization generally given at the beginning, and the theory is that that authorization continues so that it, at, at every moment subsequent to that, the client is saying, yes, you may sell these things or buy, as you see fit, for my benefit, so that at any moment at which the client remains silent and allows that authorization to continue, if at that moment uh, the broker has formed the intent, which you would take to be sufficient, why doesn't that function in the same way uh, as the authorization specifically induced? The client is being quiet and is continuing the authorization because the broker is implicitly lying. Justice Souter, my answer to that is this. If it is shown, in other words, assuming you have a discretionary account to invest conservatively, if the broker then goes and buys a penny stock, that is outside the scope of the discretionary authorization, and it would be a violation of 10B. Well, it's outside of the authorization at the beginning because the authorization under no circumstances covered that kind of a sale. It was, yeah, it was outside the scope of the But the, the term of the authorization that I'm saying is crucial and that I thought you were saying crucial in the case that you succeed uh, is the term of the authorization that, in effect, says, you may sell this stock for my benefit. Uh, and you're saying if a specific decision to that effect is induced by fraud, that's enough. It gets you within the, uh, the rule. And I'm saying if a continuing decision, a decision evidenced by the client's silence, is induced, that should be sufficient, too. And one of the things that the Court of Appeals found here was that was not established. That it, with regard to the various sales, when these checks were written, the Court concluded there was nothing in the record to conclude that those sales. Okay, then maybe this case should, uh, should come out your way. But as a matter of theory, isn't it the same case, whether it's a continuing authorization or an authorization which is specifically induced? In either situation, if you can show that the, the sale itself is a violation of that authorization or a breach of it, yes. But in this case, the Court was very careful on that in saying not only that this was a discretionary account, but in light of the allegations in the indictment, there was just no proof in the record that any of these sales were in You're violation. Going back to the indictment and ignoring the complaint. Even with the complaint, there's really nothing in the, in the complaint that they're relying on other than the mutual fund account. And again, well, that of course, of conduct, one transaction after another is relevant, isn't it? Not given the time factor. And the, we're not talking — the time factor is actually from March of, of 88 to September of 90. And in that regard, there's just nothing in the record. We don't even know what the securities were uh, that were bought or sold. And that's the problem with their theory in this case. It, it, it's overarching in where it goes. There's no proof that any of these sales were not consistent with the authorization, were not in the client's interest, and they didn't attempt to prove it. In a case of churning, would you — proof that any of the proceeds were ever given to the um, uh, owner of the, the, uh, the, the principal? The proof is that the proceeds go to three contracts that were determined by the, the jury in the wire fraud case to be fraudulent that were agreements that, that were between Zanford and the clients. One was a personal loan, one was an investment, and in, in, in the, the Court determined to be fraudulent. That's where the fraud takes place. That's where the conversion takes place, not sooner, under our theory and under what the Court found. Now, you, you say that there's, there's no evidence that the sale was made uh, for, for the fraud. But if, as, as the government says, some of these sales were made to cover a check written on the account, the sale would not have occurred had the check not been written. And that check he wrote to himself or to one of these, 
one of these contract accounts. Doesn't that make it automatic that the sale occurred in order to get the money to pay him? I don't believe so, Justice Scalia, and I don't believe that was their theory in the indictment. The, the checks were written on the account, but he had authority to do that. There's no Fine. indication that was And wrong. is the writing of the check that caused the sale? Positions were liquidated in order to pay the checks, but right. there's no indication that those sales were not a deliberate decision to sell those securities at that point to take the money and put it into something else. There's nothing to indicate that that was unauthorized to do that. Oh. Because they didn't — we, we don't know what authorized. the stocks were. Why do I, I'm missing something. Why do you write the check first if all you intend to do is to take the proceeds and buy another stock for the client's benefit? It's, it's the sequence of the check, I think, that's bothering Well, it's the, the sequence of the check is to take the money out of the account and invest it otherwise, which is why you would do it that way or could do it that way. But we know very little about it. But there, there's nothing Does, in Doesn't it matter who the check is written to? I mean, I presume these checks that the government referring, was referring to were not checks sort of uh, payable to the mutual fund to buy more stock or payable for the purchase of other stock. It was simply payable to the broker, wasn't it? Well, it was payable to the broker or accounts controlled by the broker. But as the evidence establishes in the record on the affirming the appeal on the sufficiency of the evidence claim, the money went into other investments. And that is what Zanford's defense was. These were other legitimate investments, and that's what I was doing with the money, and they knew about it, and that's, that's what was, was — So they can't — you're saying they can't trace any proceeds necessarily from the checks drawn uh, into, into Zanford's personal accounts or, or — Well, they, they — they, the way they describe it, it goes to Zanford accounts controlled by Zanford. So they, they do indicate that the conversion of the proceeds into other investments was fraudulent. Well, let, 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 let me just see what your theory is here. Suppose the way it works is — that there's a mutual fund account, the broker decides, I want to take this money for I, my own purposes, uh, to, to, to spend on a pleasure cruise. I write the check that causes the sale of the security. Under your result, under your theory, is there a 10b-5 violation? If the, the, the writing of the check is unauthorized, it's going to be a 10b-5 violation. That's Everybody knows he didn't, the client didn't authorize the broker to take a pleasure cruise. Yeah, that's my hypothetical then it would be a 10b-5 violation. What the Court found lacking here was any evidence that the sale itself of the securities by the writing of the check established a 10b-5 violation. But it's violation. alleged properly. Is that, I mean, I read on page 29A, in July — there's a misprint in the paragraph, but in July 1988, Zanford, without the prior knowledge or consent of — must be of Wood, sold three securities in the Wood account for a total of $145,000. What their claim is, is that without the client's consent, the broker sold the securities. And then, after that, he used the proceeds for himself. All right. Now, that, on your theory, that alleges a violation of the securities law. Is that right? Under my theory, that would allege it, but the Court of Appeals right. found that, Fine. that — Then the that, correct thing of disposition in your view of this case, since the allegation is there, and since the Court of Appeals said that the criminal case didn't investigate this matter about whether it was or without the client's consent, your view is we should have a remand so that they can have a trial on the question of whether Mr. Wood did consent to the sale. Is that right? No, Justice Breyer, that's not right. Because? Because two things. One, the Court of Appeals found that there was no evidence, because it was a discretionary account, that there was anything unauthorized about it. There of wasn't course any there was no needed. evidence. 
That's because the government relied upon the criminal case. So the Court of Appeals says they're wrong to rely on that. Then, as you pointed out at the beginning, the correct result is to send it back. So now the government has a chance to put in other evidence, if you're right, about what the evidence shows. In the ordinary course, I would agree with that. All other things being equal, that would be the result. But if, in fact, the SEC, by its litigation posture, chose to rest exclusively on the criminal indictment, this is I mean, there's case. something in this record where the SEC says, by the way, if this criminal case does not provide sufficient evidence, we do not intend to put in any other evidence. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that. There are representations that, that the criminal case is the same as the civil case. At the time of oral argument in this case, we argued to the Court that if this is all they have, if the criminal indictment is — Yes, in the Court of Appeals. If this is all they have, then there's nothing to send it back for, because this evidence in the criminal case — I mean, it's going to be agreed that there is no doubt that this retarded individual of a very advanced age agreed that his securities would be sold for the purpose of the broker running off with the money. Justice Breyer, I think — Say that with some sarcasm. There's some voice, sarcasm. It sounds to me incredible. Obviously, these are very hard facts to argue from. And my point, is, as I say, is he, he, he went to jail for almost five years. It violates all sorts of rules, provisions, statutes. There's no question about this. This conduct is controlled. The, the, the Court of Appeals had no doubt about that. But a 10B violation is different. And also the SEC's litigation posture is different. If they're going to give up the facts in the complaint and argue the case on the indictment in a strategical attempt to get the Court to rule the way they want, which is the, the broadest possible 10B, then they've got to live with it. And when the, that's, the fact that's for purposes of their affirmative motion for summary judgment. They could then say these, these facts are established. But that's not a sufficient reason for granting summary judgment the other way around. I absolutely agree, Justice Stevens, and our only point there is, is actually — Therefore, we should not, igno- not ignore the allegations of the complaint that go beyond the indictment. The only objection I have to that is the fact that they sought rehearing, and they sought rehearing and bonk, and not one word was mentioned about the remand for dismissal. They were still arguing collateral estoppel, and on the facts in the indictment, we win outright. They did not even bring it to the attention of the Court. They that's did not because, ask for a that's remand. Because they were trying to win outright. That's right. And when they filed for a search. That's you're winning outright. When they filed, of course. It, There's no question that both sides agree that bankers' life in O'Hagan control, and we we say it's clear we win. That's that's the normal case. But when they don't seek rehearing on that basis, so this Court doesn't even know why the Court of Appeals did what it did, and when they file for certiorari and don't raise that as a claim for reversing. Well, when when you say we don't know the reason why the Court of Appeals did what it did, I mean, it wrote an opinion which usually gives the reason why the Court of Appeals did what it did. Are you complaining that they didn't say anything on rehearing? Well, what I'm saying is, is, is when this comes up for the first time in the opinion of the Court of Appeals, and they file for rehearing, and they don't even bring it to the attention of the Court so the Court can determine whether there is something to be corrected or whether this is the Court's understanding from moral argument that, that what their well, case is. You're saying that the government didn't raise this issue in their petition for rehearing to the Court of Appeals? They did not even mention it. Well, but I, I don't know that they have to. I mean, uh, so long as they properly petition here. I, I don't know that you need have petition for rehearing in the Court of Appeals. Ordinarily, and, and I, would, I would absolutely agree, Mr. Chief Justice, but I think when it's something that comes up in the opinion from the Court of Appeals, that on its face, 
it doesn't have any explanation that, that basically says instead of going back so you can prove your case, we're throwing it out completely. And they don't say a word to the Court of Appeals as to that's the wrong remedy. I mean, that's the first thing. But, oh, Mr. Goldblatt, the Court of Appeals decision didn't turn on issue preclusion. Or it, it turned on a notion that in order to ha- have a violation of 10B, you had to have some kind of misleading about the merits of a certain security something tied to the security and not that they regarded this as as a common law crime as as theft the the court I mean, the point was they made is it's the same as if if what was entrusted to the broker were a car and he sold the car for himself instead of Customer. The point was that the securities were incidental to this fraud. They were not an integral part of it. And well, may I just interrupt with one? The question presented is whether when the stockholder sells his customer's securities for his own benefit. Now, do we have to assume he sold them for his own benefit at the time the sale was made? Or you're saying, that in fact, he sold them for, the cus- for his uh, principal's benefit and later decided to uh, appropriate the proceeds. Justice Stevens, what I am saying is there is no proof in this record that at the time of well, the Well, maybe there's no there, proof, but the question we're asked to decide is when he does it for his own benefit, is it a violation of 10b-4? That's what the question is. I understand that, Justice Stevens, and And what's your answer to the question? My, your answer to the question is he didn't do it. My, my answer to the question is it is if it is authorized sale, either on the instructions well, of if the, it's a sale for his own benefit. What, and, and if it, at the same time, it is also consistent with the client's instructions, until he converts, he has not violated 10B. Even if, though the sale was for his own benefit at the time he e- made the sale? Even though he, if it is for his own benefit, in other words, it can be both at the same time. At the time of the sale, if a client calls you and says, sell my XYZ stock, I want it sold today, and you sell it with the intent to convert the proceeds, that sale is not simply for the, the broker's benefit. It is consistent with the instructions. It's an authorized sale. Until and unless he actually converts the proceeds, he has violated nothing. But when you say it is consistent with the instruction, you're assuming the instruction simply means you can buy or you can sell, whereas the argument is that the instruction is you can buy for my benefit or you can sell for my benefit. And if we accept the latter characterization is true, then even on your own theory, he was not. Uh, making a sale that he was authorized to make. I would disagree, Justice Souter. On this record, it may well be that it was for his benefit, but I don't think you conclude it was not for his client's benefit as well. Mr. Goldblatt, before you sit down, would you say something about the fact that you have adjudications by the SEC that adopt the theory that they're arguing before us? Why shouldn't we defer if, if the question is a close one? As I understand it, these are formal adjudications under the Administrative Procedure Act, and they have ruled in accordance with the theory that the government is now arguing. Why isn't that entitled to deference? Justice Scalia, assuming, and I, because my time ran out, assuming that, that Congress, in fact, delegated the discretion to the agency, I don't think you can find in any of the various things that they rely on any rule dealing with 10, 10B or Section 10B-5 that speaks to the precise issues that are raised in this case or even close to them. What they do is they have rules that in 16 or so cases or whatever the number, they have prosecuted for 10B violations, brokers who convert. But they are not necessarily, as a matter of fact, I don't recall any of them being discretionary accounts or presenting the type of 10B analysis, fraud in connection with a purchase or sale of securities. What so you're are, saying we can defer it, but there's nothing to defer to. That's correct. Assuming there is deference, there's nothing to defer to, and if there was, it would be a rule that they're 
ultimately asking for that a broker, any time they convert from the account, violates 10B, and that would be arbitrary. That is not the way this rule is applied. It's applied on a careful case-by-case basis. So whichever way you go on that, I don't think it gets them the deference that they seek. I, I would add, however, with the, the little time that I have left, that I do not believe they would get that deference. On churning, Justice Ginsburg, just to get to that point, in a churning case, I think that is more the O'Hagan paradigm. You consummate the fraud through the sale itself. It is the sale that completes the violation. It is the sale that consummates the violation of fiduciary duty. That's the difference between here and a churning case. Until and unless Zanford converts those proceeds, which is done through it, agreements that are outside the scope of the securities laws, he has not violated 10B. In a churning case, the sale itself consummates it, and it meets the other conditions that are required in O'Hagan. That is a different situation, and it is also established, of course, in that situation, through the pattern of sales, you have the proof that you don't have here, which is those sales were not in the client's interest. If you cannot establish that they're not in the Goldblatt. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Roberts, uh, Mr. Roberts, uh, the government wants the Court of Appeals reversed here, I'm sure. But does it want the summary judgment granted by the District Court for the SEC affirmed? No, Your Honor. We didn't seek review of the reversal of the summary judgment. We sought review of the different part of the Court of Appeals' opinion after it reversed the, the summary judgment, explained why uh, it didn't think summary judgment could be granted. It went on to say that the allegations in the complaint uh, didn't uh, state a claim under uh, 10B, and that's what we want reversed. And the Court of Appeals uh, relied uh, on the facts on page 8A of uh, the petition. Uh, the Court of Appeals states in the part of the opinion that's relevant here that the SEC, I'm in the middle paragraph uh, of that uh, page under the B, and uh, I think it's the third sentence, uh, says it, meaning the SEC, alleges that Zanford defrauded the Woods by failing to inform them that he intended to sell their securities in order to obtain the proceeds for himself. So the facts that the Court of Appeals uh, was con- were considering are precisely the same facts that uh, we're relying on here, Your Honor. And the in- Go ahead. If, uh, I have I, I was, subject finishes. Okay. I was just going to say that the indictment um, is, is no different uh, in, in any event. And on page 41A uh, in paragraph 5 of the indictment, uh, it, it alleged that uh, Charles Zanford caused checks to be issued against the security positions of William R. Wood and Diana Stolsky and made payable to Charles Zanford, thereby causing their securities to be liquidated. It doesn't say it was without their consent. Um, it no says it was part of a scheme and artifice to defraud. True. That's true. Um, so I think that uh, that, that uh, pretty well encompasses. Mr. Roberts, we have apparently some, I would call it a factual disagreement as to whether any uh, — any adjudications by the SEC uh, adopt the theory that you're arguing before us today? What are your best cases? Okay. I, I would point to, um, on page 36 of our brief, we discussed the Southeastern Securities Corporation uh, adjudication, Your Honor, from 1949, um, seven years after the SEC promulgated Rule 10B. Uh, and uh, in that case, um, the facts were that the uh, President and director of the brokerage firm sold the customer securities without her knowledge or consent and converted the proceeds of the sale to his own use. And um, after explaining that there was a relationship of trust and confidence um, and that he had a fiduciary duty, the uh, the SEC addressed this, the argument that um, the, that his conduct was authorized because he had discretion over the customer's affairs by virtue of a general power of attorney, and rejected that argument 
noting that even assuming the power of attorney's validity, it didn't authorize um, this conduct, absence of showing a full and specific disclosure to and understanding and consent by the customer. And then the Commission concluded that the stockbroker's taking and sale of the customer's securities and his use of the proceeds constituted a willful abuse of his trust and a violation of when, Section When do you say uh, rule, uh, 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 or Section 10B is violated? Let's assume that this scheme is discovered before he actually runs off with the money. He sold the stocks in order to run off with the proceeds, but you get him before he runs off with the proceeds. Has, has there been a violation yes. at the time of the sale? Yes. There's a violation at the time of the sale. Okay. The discretionary authority doesn't make the sale authorized because he's authorized only to sell okay. for the benefit of well, the customers. Uh, I mean, that, that, uh, it seems to me that's logical, and, and that sort of makes me worry about, uh, about the, the, the great scope of litigation that we're inviting. If you say civil actions not by the Commission but by individuals are also, are also available under this theory. Well, Whenever a broker sells stock, he's always open to the charge that uh, he wasn't doing it in my interest. Uh, he was doing it in his own. And you have a lawsuit. Two, two points uh, to address that concern, Your Honor. First of all, uh, as I was discussing with Justice Ginsburg earlier, uh, when uh, there's a private action requires proof of damages. And if the broker doesn't follow through with his plan to, to um, convert the proceeds, it will be, uh, it will be frequently the case that the, the customer can't uh, show damages and he needs to be able to allege those as a required part of the action. Couldn't bring it at all. Uh, end of case. Well, the stock's gone up. I mean, the stock okay. that has been sold has okay. gone up enormously. Right. And if, all, all, the, all the plaintiff has to allege is, you really didn't sell it in my interest. You sold it because you were, you were going to run off with the proceeds. And look what happened. The stock went way up. No, Your Honor. Under the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, the plaintiff has to state with particularity facts giving rise to a strong inference that def the defendant acted with the requisite fraudulent state of mind. Well, are you saying that every breach of fiduciary duty is a, is a fraud under 10B? Uh, no, Your Honor. Only, only uh, secret deceptive breaches of fiduciary duty are frauds. What about well, a standard most, churning most case? Breaches of, of breaches of fiduciary duty secret? You don't announce that you're breaching a fiduciary duty. Uh, many of them, particular breaches of the duty of loyalty, uh, will be secret, Your Honor. Uh, but uh, not every breach of the fiduciary duty is going to be uh, is going to be secret or or knowing. A breach of the duty of care wouldn't even be uh, knowing necessarily. A breach of the duty of fairness, uh, as in the Santa Fe case, where all the facts are disclosed, would not be deceptive, and there would be no violation. But in O'Hagan, the court explained that um, when the when a fiduciary pretends loyalty to the principal and instead embezzles the principal's property, that's a fraud. And that's what, a fraud. What happens with standard churning cases? This is, this is just like a standard uh, churning case, Your Honor. Uh, well, are, are, churning are, cases is, there, is there authority that this is a 10b-5 violation and, yes, and that's all, a given, or are we holding that in this Well, um, I, you're not addressing churning uh, because, obviously, that's not here. But I, I think that um, the courts of appeals have unanimously concluded that churning is a violation. And that's because the, the uh, broker who has control over the account and who's been entrusted with trading authority by the customer is making the trades not in furtherance of the customer's investment objectives, but in furtherance of the broker's aim of gaining commission. So if you prevail in this case, this case will be authority which validates all of the circuit opinions holding that churning is a violation. Well, again, Your Honor, churning is, is 
It's a, it's a different uh, — it's a different factual scenario because there are repeated sales and because the proceeds aren't taken. Uh, and I, I suppose that a distinction could be drawn um, between when the proceeds are taken uh, and uh, if the proceeds — if it isn't a question of taking the proceeds but just uh, making a, a, a commission uh, which the customer knows that the broker is doing. But I do think this would be strong precedent uh, in support. Well, you want to argue that distinction, Mr. Roberts? Not, not particularly. <laughs> I, I, I was acknowledging. I think that this would be strong precedent. But I responded concedes that the churning is covered. The courts of appeals unanimously have held that churning is covered. Um, I have no doubt that churning is covered. The SEC has no doubt that churning is covered. So uh, you wouldn't be breaking uh, — wouldn't be breaking uh, — new ground in holding that. I mean, you would be in the sense that it would be your decision, but um, you can make the distinctions in future cases that you feel uh, are appropriate and, and necessary. You're right. <laughs> too true, too true. <laughs> uh, if there are no further questions, uh, the government would ask that the uh, decision of the Court of Appeals be reversed. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. The case is submitted.